How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. We're instantly forgiven, cleansed of all sin, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can advance in our spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Your word is absolute truth. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in thy light that we see light, and it is only as we submit our thinking to the revelation which you have given to us in your word that we can see things as they actually are, not as they have been distorted through the lens of fallen man. Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening, that we would be challenged, that we would Uh, be challenged in our spiritual life, challenged in our intellectual understanding, challenged with the veracity of your word, that we might have uh, a greater sense of uh, faith in your word and and a greater sense of its uh, truthfulness and veracity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the process of a review on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. One of the reasons that I'm doing this is because as of tonight, we're on our 60th hour in Genesis. In 60 hours, I bet most of you don't remember what I taught in the first 15 hours. So we're having to go back and review this just to put it all together so we have a have it in our heads again. We need that repetition over and over and over again. And we won't go this way for some time because we will... Uh, get into the meat of Genesis, which is really the section from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, which is the foundation of the uh, nation Israel. And that foundation comes with the call of Abraham in Genesis uh, 12, verse 1. So we've gone up through the midpoint of Genesis 3 with the birth of Abram. So we're going back to pick up uh, this foundation to uh, just go over it. Now, as I've said, Genesis is a book, is a book of beginnings. And as we've gone through Genesis 1 through 11, we've seen the beginning of numerous doctrines that are foundational to the rest of Scripture. And we have seen again and again that if you throw out a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11, then you have to throw out the rest of the Bible. Because the rest of the Bible is built on a literal interpretation of Genesis. And two weeks ago, as I began the review, or two lessons back, we looked at how Jesus and Paul and the other apostles all interpreted the events of Genesis 1 through 11 in a literal fashion, so that that becomes the foundation. If you want to understand Genesis, you can understand it in terms of two things. Four events and four people. These eight things give you the whole outline for the book of, of Genesis. The four events are the creation, the fall of man, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. That's the first 11 chapters right there. If you've got that, if you can just say fall, flood, I mean, if creation, fall, flood, Babel, you've got it. And then the basic core of the book from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, 49 chapters, or 39 chapters, we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that is the structure of Genesis. Now, all we're doing in this review is looking at these first four events, and last time we looked at creation. Now, this isn't simply a story of creation. It's not just there simply to tell us 
about the fact that God created everything. The creation of all things, the creation of the whole universe is covered. Think about it. It's covered in Genesis 1-1 down through 2-3, just a few verses. It's really not a lot, but it becomes the foundation for the rest of Scripture and gives us an insight at the very beginning into who God is. So when we think of creation, the first thing that we need to think of is God, that this is telling us who God is and that the God of the Bible is distinct, radically distinct from creation. And... I developed this chart last time to help us understand the difference between the biblical viewpoint and all pagan systems. There's only two, basically two ways of looking at, at creation, looking at the universe. There's the biblical way and there's the pagan way. Pagan simply means anything, any view that's not biblical. There's the biblical way and the pagan way. And people may say, well, there's a hundred different creation stories. No, they're just a hundred different variations on the same theme. And the same theme is the pagan view of creation. And it is the same all the way down through history. The Bible sees God as a personal God, but He is also infinite. But there is a radical separation between God as the Creator and man as the creation and all of creation. So that we have God above this line, and then there's a brick wall there separating God from the finite universe. He's not part of the universe. The universe isn't created out of him. Last time I went back and again reviewed the uh, Enuma Elish, the creation uh, story from uh, ancient Babylon. And there it's clear that it is out of the gods, out of the body, the, the basic matter of the gods' bodies themselves, that the universe is made. Everything comes out of that. Now, I'll get to that in a minute. I've had some more thoughts and insights on this, and will in the next couple of weeks. I am uh, putting together a two- to three-hour presentation for the uh, Conservative Theological Society meeting in uh, Dallas in two weeks. And the title that for the paper that I was to do was on the uh, evolution of evolution. I was going to do it for one hour and then do another paper on the subject of, of evolution in the soft sciences. And this, that's just too broad of a topic, and so is the evolution of evolution. But as I'm immersing myself in this whole study, I'm beginning to see a lot of things I haven't seen before. Just uh, nothing earth-shattering, but just little things here and there that, that pull uh, a lot together that that I haven't necessarily put together before. So in the biblical viewpoint, we have God who is completely separate, completely different from his creation. And we have to work that out in our thinking systematically and consistently. And the reason I emphasize that is because in the early church you had early church fathers who believed in an ex nihilo creation, ex nihilo is the Latin phrase, out of nothing. And they believed in that. Men like uh, Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in the uh, early 5th century uh, A.D., and he believed in that. But he was so influenced by the thought of of Greek philosophy and these various things that he had gone through before he was saved that he had elements in his thought that that were completely inconsistent and... It's it's like having landmines in your theology. And as you go through and develop thought, or as somebody comes along after you and develops thought, these things explode and make messes all over the place. And that's exactly what happened down through the centuries from the early church down through the medieval church. They failed to work this principle out consistently in every area of thought. So the Bible presents God as completely distinct from the universe. He creates everything out of nothing. He, although He is infinite and eternal, He doesn't create out of His own being. This is a fundamental flaw that goes down through all pagan thought, 
is that being somehow generates out of being. And uh, God is completely separate. He creates the universe distinct. And within the universe you have man, animals, vegetation, matter. And these are all distinct kinds. And there is no blending. There's no uh, fluidity between the kinds. There's no such thing as, as evolution. There is change and development within species, but not between species. Now, there's this separation between the biblical view and the pagan view. The pagan view has an infinite personal universe. It's always there. There's always something. There's always, whether it's a gas cloud, whether it's water, whether it's chaos. But if there's chaos, something's chaotic. Whether it's gas, whether it's a solid, whether it's energy, there's something there, there is always something. So you have an infinite universe. And then this circle really describes being. Now, you've heard me use this phrase, um, continuity of being, or the, the uh, uh, chain of being, or uh, uh, Aristotle had the term, well, really, what didn't, it wasn't his term, it was applied to Aristotelian thought, uh, the scala natura, the scale of nature. And this established in the ancient world, ancient Greek philosophy, this, this hierarchy of being. Now, that doesn't communicate to most of you, so I'm going to try to explain this. I've got to, I've got to explain this in a couple of weeks, so I might as well try to explain it to y'all, because even though some of these guys are pastors, and some of them, uh, I know in a couple of cases, they're seminary professors, this gets into the whole realm of the history of philosophy and the history of ideas in philosophy. Most of these guys don't have any more of a clue about that than you do. And the big problem you had in the ancient world was, in, in, in philosophy, was trying to explain change. So everything around you changes. People die, things die, there's change. So on the one hand, you have change. But on the other hand, there seems to be something that doesn't change, some sort of, of, um, of, of changeless substance, let's say. Let's just call it that, that underlies everything. Well, what they did was in the development of Greek thought, that, that, that changeless existing substance was identified as being. Okay, this is the idea of existence. There's something out there that exists. There is being itself. There, John Jean Paul Sartre said, you know, one of the great questions is that um, that something exists rather than nothing exists. Okay, there's being. But see, what they had was this concept of being, or just something existed, and they didn't know what it was, but they knew that there was something. And I always remember a phrase that was quite. Um, quite cryptic that Cornelius Van Til used to say that you don't know what the what is. You may have a that, but if you don't know what it is, you don't know, you can't define the that. Now, doesn't that make sense to you? You know that there's something there, but if you don't know what it is in terms of its characteristics or its essence, you can't say what it is. So what happens in the ancient world is they develop all of these arguments for some sort of being out there. And they called it God. But see, they don't have the characteristics of the Bible, the biblical God, so you can't identify this thing they got to as the God of the Bible. This is what everybody tries to do, but that's a tremendous leap. You can't get there. So all they were getting to was something called being itself. And out of being itself, this, this was identified as the highest good, this was identified as the, the most perfect being. Notice that word being again. Well, don't imply being as something that's personal. It's just that which exists. Okay? Uh, it was the most perfect being. It was called the... Um, they had a number of other, other terms for it. And out of this came and I'm going to use this lowercase, other beings. Other existence came out of this. Okay? 
But you see, they're all part and parcel of this one thing called being. That's why when I use that term continuity of being, what we're talking about is a continuity of this circle. Everything's inside that circle. And when you get back behind everything and you push it back, you say, well, what existed then and what existed then and what existed then? Well, there had to be something that existed. It was. We talk about it in the language of the hood. It bees. You know, it is being. That's it. It is something that existed, but it's a, what is it? You don't know what it is. So there, there was all this philosophical verbiage and argu- argumentation to identify what it was, and somehow within it, there was change. And change brings in this idea of chaos. So you have being, which is some kind of matter, plus chaos. Well, how does that differ from modern cosmogonies like the Big Bang Theory? What do you have? You go push it back far enough, what do you have? You have some little dense piece of matter or something that exists, and then you have a lot of chance. And if you put enough chance and time into the whole uh, equation, you're going to come up with uh, you're going to come up with the the universe. You're going to come up with uh, various different um, life forms from amoeba to man, and it all happens because you start off with some existent add chaos and with enough change and and in the midst of chaos and chance, you end up with something. So there's ultimately no difference in the ancient world and mythologies, this, this ultimate being where you talk about this, these gods, and they usually through some sort of sexual activity, or maybe they chopped up a god, or in the Egyptian uh, cosmogony, the god uh, cuts himself up, cuts off his body parts, and out of his body parts develop human beings or the earth or matter or whatever it is. But there's always something that's there. And before that, there's, there's this thing called chaos. So this is always part and parcel of, of pagan thought. Now you have, this is expressed in ancient mythologies like Enuma Elish, but it's also expressed in the ancient cosmogonies in Egypt. And in Greece, uh, you have the various uh, uh, Greek mythologies about, about origins. And then the Greek philosophers came along. And the Greek philosophers got rid of the personification of the forces of nature, and they just talked about nature itself, and they tried to figure out, well, what was the nature of this being? And you have people like Thales, who was one of the earliest Greek philosophers, and he said, well, when you push everything back, the ultimate nature of this is, is water. H2O, whether it's gas whether it's liquid, whether it's solid, everything comes out of water. So what do you have? You have watery chaos at the very beginning. And others added different elements, but it's, it's amazing. And that's the same thing you have in the mythologies. It's just now given a sort of a pseudo-scientific uh, format. But this is the structure. This becomes the structure of all your of all pagan thought, you can go into other religions. You can go into Hinduism, and you can go into uh, Buddhism, and... Uh, even, even Mormonism has an eternal universe. When it gets away from Christianity, now remember in some very broad, vague sense, uh, Islamic cosmogonies are biblical because they are, again, people of the book. So they want to go back to Abraham, they want to go back to creation. So they're going to be in some very broad sense, uh, have a more biblical sense of creation, uh, as do the and that was interesting because in the Middle Ages, one of the purveyors of this ancient concept that it carried through the Middle Ages because of Greek philosophy, and a lot of Greek philosophy, especially Aristotle, was lost during much of the Middle Ages. But the uh, uh, Islamic philosophers like Al-Farabi and Avicenna and Averroes were reading, uh, were reading and co- making, writing commentaries on on Aristotle, and it was their commentaries on Aristotle that found its way into the West before Aristotle was rediscovered. So they were part of the process that was used to carry this whole ancient continuity of being thought, the scale of nature, etc., on into the, on through the Middle Ages and beyond. And the thing was, it ran completely counter 
to their theology. They knew it contradicted Islamic theology, but they didn't care. You see, the same thing's happening in Christianity. You have people who are trying to explain the nature of reality without truly and literally interpreting the Bible. So you always have this, this discontinuity. And this idea of the scale of nature that pervades the Middle Ages comes down through, plate, uh, through um, uh, Augustine, and it's evident in a number of other church fathers, and it comes down to men like Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, uh, Albertus Magnus, and we got this uh, Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus uh, University here in Connecticut. That's who that's named for. He was Thomas Aquinas' mentor. And they all bought into this whole idea of this continuity of being, and this was the mental furniture that every philosopher, theologian in the Middle Ages accepted and, and believed. And even though it had, uh, it didn't have a fluidity in the in the scale between the different types, it was a uh, it, it was basically an emanationist type thing that proceeded from God as the ultimate being and full being down to the lowest possible uh, dirt molecule, and that's just uh, uh, the, the lowest form of being itself. But it's all part of being, and so it's all part of the same thing. Whereas the Bible says, no, there's God. And then there's everything else. Everything else isn't a part. It doesn't come out of the being of God. It is created out of nothing. And so we have to understand that. And part of the implication of this we're going to get into, uh, I'll touch on a little bit uh, in our study tonight, affects how you view man and how you view ultimate uh, realities and absolute. Because if you've got this concept of being... And not only do beings come out of this, but so do all of your concepts of values, laws, all your social uh, uh, social systems, all come out of this overall concept of being. In other words, if this circle describes being itself and everything comes out of that, then then... Being itself generates its own values, generates its own authority, generates its own absolutes. And this means that this is why you always have um, some sort of tyranny of some minority in any kind of system like this. Because uh, the creation itself is generating its own values, its own absolutes. Now, I know that gets really abstract and above and beyond a lot of people, but that is... What's going on? So here's our chart. We have being itself in this infinite impersonal universe. The universe itself never ends. And it's either you either have an infinite impersonal universe or you have God who's personal or infinite. One or the other. You can't have both. And so inside this circle which describes being itself, you have God, man, nature, God, man, and nature, and they're all part of the same thing and expressions of the same things. They just participate in different ways. Now, that's what we looked at last time, this radical distinction between creation, or between the creator and the creation, which the Bible presents, versus all pagan thought, which blends it in some sort of uh, scale, one way or the other, whether it's a top-to-the-bottom scale like you had in the ancient and medieval thought, or whether it's from the bottom up, which you have in modern Darwinism. Now, as we get into, as we go through the first chapter, we looked at the fact that God creates the universe, and everything is good. And there, even though there has been an angelic creation and an angelic fall, when you have the restoration of creation, when it's finished, everything is according to plan. It's a perfect creation. And God has excluded the angelic sin from its invasion into uh, this new restored creation because it's a test site. And it's a test site to demonstrate to the angels the depravity of sin and what sin can do. When God created the angels initially, he gave them volition. They had personal responsibility just as he gives man personal responsibility, and Satan fell. This is described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. And we studied that in detail, and you have the example of Satan's five-eye wills, 
where he expresses his arrogance and his, and his rebellion against God. He wants to be like God. And we infer from a number of different passages of Scripture that God judged the angels. Matthew 25, 41, we're told that, that um, the lake of fire has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, why aren't they there? Well, obviously, the execution of their sentence has been postponed. So we can infer from Scripture that God apparently is teaching something. And we can say that Satan challenged God's verdict, but the basis for his challenge of the verdict was probably along the lines of how can a loving God sentence his creatures to such a horrible condemnation as eternity in the lake of fire? We still hear that today. How can a loving God send his creatures to spend eternity in a lake of fire? In fact, it may surprise you. Nothing should surprise you. You're well taught. But there's a group of evangelicals that have become more and more vocal in the last 20 years that are, what's the word, I think, annihilationists. And this means that after the great white throne judgment, they don't spend eternity, unbelievers don't spend eternity in the lake of fire. They're just annihilated because they can't stomach the idea that God's going to put them into eternal suffering. And the question isn't so much how can God punish his creatures, but how can he punish his creatures with what, such a serious, serious, uh, eternal condemnation. And what God is showing Satan is that any act of disobedience by the creature, any act, no matter how innocuous it may be, has such in unforeseen circumstances such brings about such incredible consequences of suffering and misery and horror that a death of, of, of eternal condemnation, a punishment of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire is mild compared to what that creature causes. So what we see is a test case. God creates a, this, uh, restores this perfect environment to the planet, puts uh, Adam and Eve on the, on the planet, and gives them a test. They, he provides everything for them. God's grace is absolutely sufficient as we study. And he puts them in the garden. And the test has to do with the tree. And in verse Genesis 2.16, God says, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Notice that adverb there, freely. See, this is the grace of God. God is giving them everything. God is not somebody sitting up there telling people what you can't do and trying to spoil all your fun and keep you from having a good time. God gives Adam everything. And he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So what's the problem with eating fruit? I mean, it's not genocide. It's not uh, It's not performing some act that's politically incorrect. It's not uh, calling somebody a name. It's not calling somebody from China an Asian. You know, that's politically incorrect now. If somebody's an Asian, that's an insult. I, I can't figure out why. I guess that must mean I must take offense at being called an American. But anyway, that's the idiocy of our age. So you have, uh, you have all these horrible sins that people can think of today. Racism, genocide, uh, going to war and not finding weapons of mass destruction immediately. Uh, of course, we have found lots of weapons of mass destruction, just not the stockpiles that were anticipated. That doesn't mean they're not there. But there's all kinds of sins that people blow out of proportion. But this isn't anything like that. This is simply eating a piece of fruit. And what happens is that in the day or the instant that Adam ate from it, he died spiritually. It causes separation from God, who is the source of life. Spell that with all caps. Qualitative life. Real life is in God. Without that relationship, man is cut off. And other things are going to happen, including physical death. But now there's the introduction of suffering and sorrow and misery and struggle. The the earth is cursed. Animals, animals didn't do a cotton picking thing. Uh, the serpent, who's uh, indwelt by Satan, attempts the woman, but the beast of the field didn't do anything. And yet we're told when God outlines the curse. Uh, he speaks to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. Now, that's a comparative ad- adjective, which indicates that, that the cattle are also cursed. They didn't do anything. 
these poor cows out there now are going to have a change and live in a fallen world. And every, all the animals go through some kind of change because of the curse. Man goes through a change. There's, there's now, we're told, going to be an impact on the ground. Verse 17, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Well, what did they do? And what God is showing is that this act of disobedience on the part of a creature it's like throwing a, a meteor in the middle of the ocean. It sets off tidal waves of destruction. It's not just some little innocuous act. The sin that you and I commit that we justify and say, well, this is no big deal, sets off tidal waves of destruction in our own soul. It sets off tidal waves of problems that we don't even foresee and in some cases don't even connect in our own lives. And that's what God is demonstrating, is there's no such thing as an innocuous sin. There's no such thing as an act of disobedience or independence on the part of a creature that is simply innocuous, that just is a little little old white sin, it really doesn't matter. These things have incredible consequences, and all of the wars, all the suffering in human history, all the poverty, all the misery, all the heartache, all the famine, all the murders... All the crime, all goes back to the fact that Adam just ate a piece of fruit. And so what God is demonstrating to Satan and to all creatures in the midst of this angelic conflict is that when the creature acts independently of the Creator, no matter how innocuous it may appear, the unforeseen consequences are so heinous that it is worthy of an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So the second major event is the fall, and the fall explains how evil enters into creation, why things are the way they are. And you must understand the fall, and you must understand the sin nature if you're going to be able to properly and adequately deal with any situation in life. Because every situation that you face in life is marred by sin, and most situations you deal with in life, you're going to deal with people who are marred by a sin nature. They are corrupt individuals. It doesn't matter how nice they are, how sweet they are. It doesn't matter that they're a believer and they're regenerate. They still have a sin nature. And they're still going to yield to that sin nature at times, maybe frequently, and it's going to set off all kinds of fireworks and problems. And the only way you can deal with that is to understand where it comes from. And the fact that we live in a fallen world. If you don't face the fact that we're living in a fallen world and your kids are dirty, rotten sinners and as corrupt as they can possibly be, then you're going to, and you don't deal with that when they're between the ages of one and ten, then you're going to rue your innocence when they're, when they hit puberty. And it's going to be way too late for you to do anything about it. That brings it home to where most people are. You've got to deal with it in terms of your family. Deal with it in terms of your spouse. Deal with it in terms of your teachers, your students, your employers, your employees. Uh, everybody you deal with is, is affected. Every system on earth, every uh, social system, whether it's marriage, whether it's education, whether it's politics, government, law, it's, it's never going to be perfect. And it is always going to tend towards tyranny. That is the natural state because of these, the uh, characteristics of sin. So what we see in uh, Genesis, in the first two chapters, is that as we deal with the doctrines related to God, man, and nature, how things were originally created, and then what they become after the fall, we see that this becomes central to every area of of human involvement. It affects theology, it affects prayer, it affects Bible study, it affects philosophy, it affects mathematics, it affects biology, it affects uh, careers, it affects uh, physical health, it affects marriage, it affects family, it affects labor, work. All of these things are affected. You can't name anything in life that isn't touched by these events. And so we have to understand them. So we start off with man before the fall, and I want to break this down into four areas. 
We're going to look at man in relationship to God. So this is the spiritual dimension. Second, we're going to look at man in relationship to himself. And this is the psychological dimension. We're going to look at man in relationship to uh, other human beings. And this is the social dimension. And then we're going to look at man in relationship to nature. And this is the ecological dimension. So that just gives you a basic uh, categorical breakdown to understand what is going on in these uh, two chapters of Genesis that deal with the fall. Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. When we look at man before the fall, we see that man is... In the image of God. This deals with the basic orientation of the first two categories uh, in relationship to God and in relationship to Himself. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we see that God creates man in His own image. So that has certain implications. It has an implication that in terms of man's mission, okay, His purpose. His purpose is that He is created to represent God to creation. He is to rule over creation because God set him there. God can do that because God is outside of creation. He is not part of creation. He is completely distinct. So man as part of creation is set over creation to rule creation. So this clearly indicates there is a hierarchy but it is within creation and does not include God. So he is to represent God to the creation, and he is to rule the creation. Ethically, this means that man is created with perfect righteousness. He's in the image of God, so he has perfect righteousness. It is untested righteousness. Now, a word that was used to describe this, and the initial age, is the word innocent. Innocence. Remember, this is the first dispensation between, which is the administration of uh, God's administration of human history. And the first dispensation goes from creation to the fall, and it's the age of innocence. Now, a lot of people have poked fun at that term. Because when you think of the term innocence, what we think of is a naivety. Right? But that's not how you should understand that word. When C.I. Schofield used that word to describe the first divine institution, he wasn't talking about man being innocent. He was talking about man being innocent in the sense of a court case. He understood that so much of Scripture is laid out in the framework of a judicial proceeding. Man is innocent in the sense that he's not guilty. After Genesis 3, he's no longer innocent, he's guilty. That's what he meant by innocent. He didn't mean naive. He meant that man was created in a state of being not guilty. He was perfect righteousness. It was untested righteousness, but it was still perfect righteousness. So this is, has to do with the, the uh, initial purpose. And man is under the authority of God. So even in perfect environment, we see that there is authority, and there's a recognition of authority, and that there's even authority within the structure of the Trinity that God the Father is the final authority within the Trinity, but that doesn't mean that Father and Son and Holy Spirit are not equal. Authority, relationships have nothing to do with equality. And, of course, that's the lie of modern feminism that has become part and parcel of everyday thought today, is that somehow if somebody's in authority, if the man's in authority in the home, then that's demeaning of the woman. It's not. If that's true, then you've got a lot of problems, uh, not the least of which is you can't really trust the deity of Christ. But authority doesn't have anything to do with equality. You've all, if you haven't ever worked for somebody who's in authority over you who is uh, less intelligent than you, less insightful than you, then uh, you have something to learn. But authority doesn't have anything to do with equality. It has to do with order and structure, and purpose, and goal, and being able to achieve things. So there's an authority structure. God's an authority. Man is set in authority over, over creation. And spiritually, man has perfect rapport with God. He is in a perfect relationship with God, 
and there is no hindrance to that relationship, and he is learning. Notice that he's not created with, with all knowledge. He has finite knowledge, and God's teaching him. Every day God is teaching him, so he's learning, but he's learning under God's authority and within the framework of divine revelation. And I've pointed out the last couple of times that Adam could have learned many things about the trees in the Garden of Eden through empiricism and rationalism, but he could never have learned that if he ate from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. He had to learn that through God's revelation. So man can only function because of his limited knowledge as a creature on the basis of submission to divine revelation. So spiritually, we learn these things about about man in relationship to God. There's there's no problem. He has a perfect relationship to God. In terms of him himself, in terms of his psychology, he becomes a living soul in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 7. Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a literally a living soul. And the Hebrew word there is nefesh. A living soul. Now that, that really refers to the fact that man has two parts, two components. He has the physical, corporeal component, which we'll call biological life, and he has an immaterial uh, component. I see, immaterial component. And that is, as we learn later, is made up of two elements, a soul and a human spirit. The soul has four elements. It has a self-consciousness, which indicates that he has self-awareness, self-identity. He can understand his purpose and his orientation within the plan of God. He has a mentality so that he can learn to think and he can learn, he can understand God's plan and he can generate thought on his own. He has volition so that he is accountable and responsible for the decisions that he makes and he has a conscience where he stores the standards of God, the absolute standards of God. The human spirit is something that interacts with these four elements of the soul so that they can all direct themselves towards God and man can have a relationship with God. As it were, the soul is the basic uh, nature of man and his immaterial essence and the human spirit is is that which allows him to have a, a be, to transmit on the same frequency with God and understand God, have communication with God and have a uh, have a relationship with God. So that when Adam eats the fruit and he dies spiritually, he loses that human spirit. It can no longer function so that man is left to operate on his own in terms of his soul. He is cut off from God, the source of life, and in terms of his self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience, he's out hanging on his own without any input from God. So we understand that man begins this way psychologically, and he is perfectly healthy. Let's put this in psychobabble terminology. He's perfectly healthy psychologically. There's no problem there. So what, what we'll see is happens, of course, is what screws him up psychologically is not that his parents dropped him on his head. It's not that he was abused when he was a child. It's not that he grew up in poverty or he grew up uh, in the ghetto or he grew up uh, with, with uh, parents who were alcoholics or drug addicts or ignored him. His basic problem doesn't have anything to do with his environment. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, his place in the social order, whether he's upper, upper or, or lower class. It doesn't have anything to do with his education or lack of education. It doesn't have anything to do with his IQ, whether it's high or low. It has to, his problem is going to be sin, pure and simple. And if you're not dealing with that as the problem, then you're not, you're just dealing with symptoms and you're never going to be able to ultimately resolve whatever the situation is. So we look at man before the fall spiritually. He has a relationship with God psychologically. He is, 
He is whole because of the soul and spirit connection. Socially, God establishes two divine institutions, actually three. Uh, Only one is potential. He has volition established, clearly. That's the test of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And in volition, the authority is God. He's accountable to God for all of his decisions. And this is established before before there's a fall, before there's any corruption in history. And the second divine institution is marriage. Marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman. It is not a marriage if they are of the same sex. And I will probably go to prison for this before my life is over with. So you all have to join me there. But it's not, it, it's already against the law to say that in Canada. And it's defined as hate speech. And it won't be long before it's that way in this country. And we have to get involved and Christians have to be uh, involved politically and with their representatives and they have to be vocal. Uh, about this or we're going to lose the war. We may lose it anyway. We probably will. But that's where we're headed. Marriage is the foundation. It is between one man and one woman, period. And this is established before the fall. And then potentially family is established because they are told in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So part of the command to exercise dominion over the planet is to have children and produce uh, generations so that those generations will be able to carry out this dominion mandate. So this is man socially, and there is perfect harmony there. There is a perfect... Uh, rapport between Adam and the woman. These are designed, and these divine institutions are designed for the harmony, the perpetuation of the human race to enable them to fulfill that divine purpose that God gave them. So that must be understood. And then fourth, we see the relationship with nature or the ecological issue, and there is no disharmony with creation. Man is the Lord over creation. He's the one who's naming and categorizing all of the animals. The animals are there for man's benefit and for his purpose, and there is perfect harmony, and there's no problem in creation. Then we have the fall. Now, it's important to understand the dynamic of what takes place in the fall, because at the very core of the fall, there are two issues. One is an issue of, of authority, and the second relates to it, and that is an issue of knowledge. And what I'm just, what we'll call epistemology and interpretation. Now, that's a fancy word, it just means how you know what you know. See, if you look at Genesis 2 17 and 18, and we did this, God commanded them, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Notice there's no restriction there. God doesn't have a, he's not out there trying to uh, uh, destroy all their fun and keep them from doing things. But he is freely supplied an, an overabundance of food and nutrition for, for Adam and the woman. Just one exception. There's a test. Now, notice what God says. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 3. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has indeed God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So God said? Notice how he twisted it. So the first thing we see is the serpent is going to come along, and he is, he is challenging the authority of God, has God said... And he's challenging it by reinterpreting and putting his own spin on what God said. God said you can eat freely eat, and the way the serpent expresses it is you can't eat of every tree. See, he spins it negatively. And the woman says to the serpent, well, we may eat, of the, fr- eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. Notice she doesn't say we, we can freely eat. She leaves that out. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what he said? 
He didn't mention touching it. So see, she's not accurately interpreting what God said. This is why I said this gets to a problem of knowledge. She is, she's already got her one foot in the grave, so to speak, the spiritual grave, because she is already reinterpreting what God said. She's not listening to God. This is why it is so important for you to be in Bible class more often than we have time to have Bible class. That's why you have tapes. You need to listen to tapes. Is because, you know, we start falling apart as soon as we start dropping out adverbs. So you have to know the Word. You have to know it inside and out, backwards and forwards. And you have to know the Word, not just doctrinal summations. Now, we go through doctrinal summations, and I give you the doctrine of this and the doctrine of that, but those are my summations of what the Bible teaches on a particular subject. But you need to know the Word and precisely what God said. That's one of the reasons why I take so much time to exegete in the original languages and to bring that to you is to show you what is said and what the nuances are in the original languages because you always lose something in translation. That's not to... Uh, say you can't have an adequate adequate and accurate understanding of the Word of God without knowing the original languages, but you have to know what the Scripture says. So, here's a mistake. And the serpent then challenges that interpretation and says you won't die. See, God interpreted reality. And what happens, the creature comes along and wants to reinterpret reality. See, at this point, the serpent... It's telling them, don't live in the realm of reality. Live on the basis of your wishes, whims, and reconstruction of reality. Don't live on the basis of how God defined reality. But the Scripture is clear that God as the Creator has the right to determine the nature of things. And He tells us the nature of things and the way things really are. And see, most people, especially in a fallen world now, don't want to face things the way they really are. They don't want to face the... Uh, corruption of man. It's much easier and more comfortable to live in some sort of dream world that the people really aren't bad and that the people don't want to go to war and that there aren't people out there who want to kill us and destroy us and there aren't people who are religious fanatics who really want to destroy Western civilization. Well, we, it's more comfortable to create some sort of a fairy world and live in the middle of that fairy world and think that somehow we can... Uh, we can define marriage the way we want to define marriage, and, and we can define culture the way we want to define culture. And, and these are people who are psychotic. Because remember the basic definition of neurotic and psychotic? And somebody's neurotic when they are uh, creating a dream world. You're psychotic when you move in. Okay? So we just defined every liberal in America as basically a, someone who is psychotic because they're creating a fairy palace in, in, in rebellion against God, and they moved in. And they want to create political leaders and political structures that fit their psychotic view of reality, because they are divorced from reality about as far as they can get. And unless that is stopped, they're going to f try to force the rest of us to move into their uh, psycho palace, and it's all going to come crashing down. But that happens in every civilization. That's the cycle of civilization. And we, we've seen it from the ancient uh, Assyrians and Babylonians to, through the Romans, and it'll affect us eventually uh, as well. And this is the devil's lie, that man can create his own reality, and he can live on the basis uh, of that reality, that he can be his own God. That's, that's verse 5. Well, we know what happens. They eat from the fruit. They, they die spiritually. And then we have our first counseling session. In, starting in verse 8, when God comes to walk in the garden with Adam and his wife. So he's going to counsel them. He's not going to say, well, how was the fruit and how did you feel about it? He's going to say, where are you? Because he's emphasizing the fact that they are apart from God. And that's the basic problem, is that they have divorced themselves from God, and until you deal with that and get right there, you can't get anything else right. 
All you're doing is putting band-aids on major problems, whether they're marriage problems, whether they're problems with your kids, whether they're personal problems, so-called emotional problems, whatever it is, until you start getting right with doctrine and getting serious about the Word and learning the Word and applying the Word, you're just fooling yourself and fooling God. So... They hear God come, and he says, where are you, emphasizing their distance from him? And they say, well, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. See, that's man's basic problem spiritually, is he's exposed, and he is vulnerable, and he can't solve the problem himself. Now, they tried to solve the problem. They sewed fig leaves together, and that's all the human viewpoint gimmicks to try to make life work apart from God. And people can, you know, the, 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 the fig leaves that modern man creates are, are almost infinite in their variety. Uh, everything from alcohol and sex and friendship and social life and burying yourself in your career and success and education, anything can become your fig leaf to try to make life work apart from God. And until you realize that nothing is going to work, all it's doing is deadening the reality of your uh, spiritual nakedness, you'll never get anywhere. So verse 11, God says, Who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree which I told you not to eat from? And then they began to blame each other and passing the buck. And starting in verse 14, we see the outline of the curse, which as I've stated is an explanation of the consequences of sin. The penalty is a judicial penalty. The penalty was, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The penalty was activated the instant they ate of the fruit. Now, there are consequences that flow from that new reality that ripple out like like tidal waves from that uh, central core explosion. And God is going to explain these. They're going to impact nature. Verse 14, it impacts the serpent so that he is going to have a form change, biological change. He's now going to crawl instead of walk upright. Who knows what the serpent looked like prior to this? But all the other beasts of the field are also cursed. All the other animals are cursed. Before this, they were all gramnivorous or omnivorous. Uh, gramnivorous, they are herbivorous, actually. They ate grass. They ate grain. But now they're going to be meat eaters. That changes dental structure. It changes your gastrointestinal system. They, through the next or subsequent generations, there were changes in the animal kingdom. There are changes in man's social relationship. Okay, what we've seen, first of all, let me back up. We saw a change to his spiritual relationship. His rapport to God with God is broken. He is spiritually dead. Let's go back to our chart here. His ability to represent God and to rule over creation is now going to be hindered. So there's always going to be a sense of frustration in man because he's now living in a in an antagonistic environment. He'll never be able to fulfill this. And it's not going to be until the Son of Man returns, at the, Jesus Christ, at the second coming, that man is going to be able to ultimately fulfill that dominion mandate. He's no longer plus R. He's now minus R. That's going to have to be fixed. He now has a basic problem with authority that is inherent to his sin nature and will plague all of his relationships for all of his life. And it's going to have a major major trend in women, as we'll see. And the rapport with God is broken, but God's going to have to solve that spiritual problem. And of course, that will be resolved at the cross because Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for sin, spiritual death. But you have to be regenerate, and that comes from trusting Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior. Then there's the social dimension, social di- or psychological dimension, in that man is now really screwed up uh, socially or psychologically because he has a soul but no human spirit. And because of that, that's going to screw up everything he does, and he's going to have a major problem. And just because he's regenerated doesn't mean the problem is solved. Because, remember, what caused the problem was a twofold breakdown, a breakdown in authority and a breakdown in knowledge. And what happens as a result of sin is he becomes, his, his, the area of knowledge 
becomes really screwed up. So that by the time most of us are saved or get serious about our spiritual life, because some of you are sa- were saved when you were children, but by the time you become serious about your spiritual life, your soul has sucked up so much garbage that the only solution is a major overhaul of the, of the way you think. Not just what you think, the content, but how you think, how I think. That's why I love that phrase, epistemological rehabilitation, but most people don't have a clue what it really means. It's hard work. It means you've got to overhaul your whole framework of thinking, your whole structure of thinking. And it's a lifetime process. It's not just learning to think good things instead of bad things and uh, not to think uh, certain kinds of things about certain kinds of people, but it is to overhaul the whole structure of thought and to learn to think biblically instead of like a pagan. The problem with most Christians is by the time they die, they're still thinking like a pagan, and they're wondering why Christianity and doctrine doesn't work. It's because they haven't done the hard work. It's not easy. See, if you want the easy stuff, you go listen to the uh, froth and uh, thrills that you get on uh, uh, on, on most of the Christian stuff on television. And it's not going to help anybody change the way they think. It just feeds... Uh, their, their fallen nature. So there has to be an epistemological overhaul psychologically or you'll never get it. And this is why most counseling never works is because the only way you're going to really fix problems is through an epistemological overhaul. And you're not going to get that in an hour ca- joint counseling session over a period of five or six weeks or even a year. You get that by going to Bible class week after week after week after week, three or four times a week, listening to tapes and applying what is taught, changing the way you think. And if you don't do that, you can accumulate all the doctrinal notebooks in the world and be able to uh, regurgitate all the stuff that is taught. But if you're not applying it and literally changing the way you think, it won't do you any good. And then things will fall apart and you'll come to me and say, well, I want to have a counseling session. Where have you been? I've been doing that three times a week for the last six years. And so, and then socially, what we see is the divine institutions get all messed up. Marriage gets messed up because now there's a sense of, of, uh, uh, there's an authority struggle between the man and the, and the, and the husband. She's told that her desire, Tashuka, will be for her husband, and Tashuka is a desire to control. And he shall rule over you. So there's this, instead of compatibility and rapport in the marriage, there is now an authority struggle, which, of course, can be reversed because of regeneration and doctrine. But other than that, this is going to be the trend. There will be the war of the sexes down through history, which is what we've seen. And man has a tendency to dominate and tyrannize the woman. Also affects the family, because most Parents become so involved in work and career and their own self-absorbed orientation that they don't have time to teach their kids to control their sin nature because most of the parents haven't figured out how to control their sin nature. And if you haven't figured out how to control your sin nature, don't start having babies because you've got your hands full already. Ecologically... They've got a problem because now there's problems in nature. The ground is cursed, and there's going to be a struggle just to survive. And the man is told that uh, it's going to be toil now to work. He had labor before, as we studied, but now it becomes toilsome. It's it's a conflict between man and, and nature, and this conflict between man and the animals is going to intensify as we go through into the Noahic Covenant. He is going to eat by the sweat of his fra- by the sweat of his brow, uh, verse 19, and then he will die physically. Uh, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It's a pretty miserable situation, but there's hope, and that is that God solved the problem of evil. He's going to restrict it, and he's going to judge it, and we studied that. God solved the problem of evil and sin. If he solved that problem, he can solve any problem in our life. This is the great message of hope, is that it didn't end with the curse. It ends with God providing a new covering for man, and that involves uh, tunics of skin where he, where he angered all the animal rights people down through the centuries by having animal sacrifice. 
And out of those animal skins, he made clothes. But see, there was a principle there. In the sacrifice, there was a shedding of blood, which is a picture of Christ's death on the cross so that um, man can have redemption. So it's a message of hope. God can solve any problem. But what has to happen is there has to be an orientation to God. We don't orient God to us. We ha- we're the ones who have to, to uh, orient ourselves back to God and to thinking uh, biblically. And this is what we have been doing, learning how to do in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. Well, that gives us a basic review of the fall. We'll cover a few more things next time, and then we'll go on to see the consequences of the fall as it leads up to the, to the Noahic flood with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your word because it describes for us the nature of reality and for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and teaches us because he helps us to understand the nature of reality and to be able to apply these things in our daily life so that we can grow and advance and that we can learn to think your thoughts after you and that we can glorify you in our own lives as we apply your word consistently in our thinking and in our actions. Uh, We thank you for your grace, for your love, for the salvation we have, for all that you have provided for us, and that someday we will all be in your presence and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, for the old things will pass away. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.